This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is Green and Gold History. 50 plus years of stories, championships, and colorful characters. This is Ace Baseball. This is Green and Gold History. What an honor it is for us here on Green and Gold History to visit with Steve Usenich. She's been with the club since day one back in 1968, 54 years. He's a historian of this team. He has seen literally everything that's happened inside this organization from the clubhouse out onto the field. And certainly this will be the beginning of a lot of uh, great memories for us with uh, with you, Steve. And I just wonder, as you look back on, on the times here with Oakland, why you felt like this was the time to say goodbye at the conclusion of this regular season and in the spring training next year, why you felt like you wanted to, uh, you finally wanted to, to step away at a time that you thought was right. You know, I, this will be the 54th year. I'm going to work through spring training next year because the winter's fun because there's not a lot to do, but just set it up and, and spring training's fun. And that's where you see all your contacts you've made over the years, whether it be sporting good reps or media types. Uh, so, in the decision, I said, well, this is 54 years. I think that's enough. There's some things I want to do while I'm healthy, do some summer travel, that's places that you can't go during the winter if you're working baseball, uh, i.e. I'm going to Alaska for 11 days. The first July, I'm off July 2022 20, with a bunch of people at cruise and a train trip up to Denali. So there's some things I want to do, and I want to do it while I'm healthy, and I don't want to be pushed out. I want to go out on my own terms and uh, the ball club was great to me from ownership through Dave Cavill, Billy and Dave Forrest and said I could have worked as long as I wanted to, as long as I was healthy. And that made you feel good. And in this game, a lot of people don't go out on their own terms and uh, I'm able to. And that's that's a plus for me. Vuce, if you could kind of set the scene of what it was like in Oakland in 1968, thinking about getting a major league team. Of course, the Giants across the Bay had been around for a decade, had some great stars on that team. And now Oakland was finally getting a chance to, to get their opportunity with the Major League team. Just remind us what it was like in the East Bay during that time. Growing up about two miles from the Coliseum site, just up in the foothills here in Oakland, number one, I didn't think we'd ever get a club in Oakland, let alone be able to work for them, let alone 54 years later. But growing up a Giant fan, it had always been rumored that when they built the Coliseum basically for the Raiders but made it into one of those convertible stadiums that were so popular in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, Charlie Finley decided to move to Oakland. The Raiders had just had great success selling out almost every game in 67 going on to the Super Bowl. And so Charlie decided to come here, always said he wanted the O in his name to stand for Oakland. That's a good publicity stunt. But um, like I said, never thinking the ball club would come here and then let alone have the opportunity. Uh, we were always second sister to San, to San Francisco, the city of Oakland was. And I've got Oakland roots. My, both my parents were born here. So... Uh, it was a big, a big uh, feather in their cap to get a club. So it comes to Oakland, and they made a big uh, advertising campaign, season tickets. Everybody got things in the mail. There were so many different plans. Charlie Finley brought out a bunch of players, John Jonelson, Rick Monday, uh, probably a host of guys 
Lou Krause, maybe six or seven guys that go on a speaking tour in the Bay Area and kind of promote the club. And that made the club kind of popular at the, at the beginning. But uh, uh, the, that year we were 82 and 80, I think, and first winning season in years, I think, maybe even back to Philadelphia, I don't know. But uh, it was a, a successful, I mean, only drew 800 some odd thousand. And all the players were saying if they were still in Kansas City with the year they had, they would have drawn over a million. So already there was speculation that it was a bad move. Uh, and uh, getting to know the players, um, when I got hired, I had been around some professional athletes, Tom Flores and Art Powell of the Raiders. Uh, Tom Macheri from the San Francisco Warriors were, was a family friend. So I wasn't really in awe of, of professional athletes. But then I got to be around them in a, in a game situation, in a uh, preparatory situation where they take, you know, batting practice, get ready and everything. And it became a different world for me. And uh, I really looked up to them because uh, they're professional athletes. They made it to the top after spending years in the minor leagues. Vuce, you know as well as anybody the great sports history of, of the Oakland area, the East Bay area, names like Bill Russell and Willie Stargell and, of course, Ricky Henderson later. You've got Veda Pinson, Billy Martin, I mean, Jackie Jensen going back years. The history of athletics in Oakland and the chance for that now to finally be celebrated in their own community. These guys have gone on to play and have greatness in a variety of sports and with a variety of teams. But what that great sports history meant here in Oakland. I think it was very important. I mean, Oakland was proud of their professional athletes going back to the Bill Russell days, even before that. And guys like Ernie Lombardi, who were just names to me, but my dad always talked about and who I later in life met. But, uh, yeah, they were very proud. I think Howard, Howard Bryant is doing his book now on Ricky and found out a bunch of those families that moved out here either post-World War or before because of manufacturing jobs here and the war effort in the Bay Area. Some of those families were from the same towns in Mississippi, Alabama, or whatever. But uh, the athletes here were always very proud. You talk about Veda Pitts, and there's a guy, with look at his numbers, and I think he was, deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. We had 2,800 hits or so. But uh, uh, the city was very proud. There were some great teams. There was a Legion championship team that uh, went from East Oakland all the way and won with uh, Steve Bry. It's funny because I tell people now that the premier baseball program for college in uh, the Bay Area all those years was the University of Santa Clara. Stanford and, and Cal just didn't have great baseball teams. And so Santa Clara got the best athletes uh, and they did very well in the NC2As. But uh, a very proud Oakland, again, the thoughts of being a sister city, uh, the ugly stepsister city to San Francisco uh, made the Oaklanders very proud. And, and the Raiders came in and had some success downtown at the old Frank Hill Field, and that inspired the Coliseum to be built. And then next thing you know, you've got the NFL here. You've got Major League Baseball. The NHL expanded, and the Seals came into the Coliseum Arena. And the Warriors eventually moved all their games over here, although the first year they only had about three or four. So it was a very proud feeling in the East Bay, Oakland, and the surrounding cities. Okay, so teenage Steve Usinich gets hired by the Major League Baseball team. How did all that come together? What, what was that like for you? It was well documented how I came in and spoke to the guy about the job, and Joe DiMaggio, one of the coaches at the time, said, hey, kid, what school you go to? And I look at this Joe DiMaggio. I said, well, I go to St. Joe's in Alameda. And he goes, Al, to the then equipment manager, Al Zeke, said, He's a Catholic Hiram. 
Well, it's a great story. It's a true story, but I think I would have got a job anyway because of familiar, familiarity of the area, baseball, and especially the Coliseum. So I get hired there. I start working. My third day on job is um, Catfish Hunter's perfect game. And I'm down the left field line, and I saw every pitch. And saw Catfish get three hits, drive in three of the four runs, um, and not realizing at the time, and we didn't know much about the American League because you didn't get a lot of American League telecasts into the Bay Area at the time, just the nine Giants-Dodger games, that that was the first perfect game in American League in 46 years. And then it really took on a feeling of uh, importance and a historical significance. And uh, uh, Catfish Hunter is my favorite player of all time, not because of that, but because of the way he acted. And I first started noticing him after that. And uh, here he had pitched the first perfect game, 46 years. He's icing himself down. Charlie Finley gives him a $5,000 bonus. And he's talking to us clubhouse kids and bad boys like he didn't do anything. Um, so that that I was in awe of Catfish and the way he handled the whole thing. Uh, there were other professional athletes there that handled themselves so well. I, re I tried to emulate the way Rick Monday conducted interviews. He never said, uh, don't you know things like that and i've always tried to be prepared when i'm interviewing even with youtube today uh and i use it up great uh but um just knowing those athletes and and seeing how that is a club that was coming together they had a good year in 66 had the problems in 67 charlie fired alvin dart brought on bob kennedy because he knew him from the cubs and uh the club played real well and you can see it was building for the future Steve, you touched a little bit on Joe DiMaggio and how unique it was for the A's to have this guy in a white hat who happened to be a Hall of Famer, a baseball icon, the Yankee Clipper. Of course, he's from the Bay Area and a chance to be with the club for the first two years in 68 and 69. I must imagine it must have been a great thrill to be around him, but give us a little bit inside with what it meant for, for you to see Joe DiMaggio and, and just what he did for the ball club. How much fun do you think he had? And why do you think this was a good fit at that time for him and for the A's? You know, it's funny. Uh, back then, they didn't designate certain coaches. You had your first base coach, your third base coach, pitching coach. Even bullpen coaches were very few and far between. But uh, Joe, they didn't designate as a hitting coach, but he just knew hitting and was such a prolific uh, hitter himself that everybody gravitated towards him and he became the hitting coach without the title. But uh, Joe, Joe was a very private person. He, uh, he would get a ton of mail, more mail than anybody else on the team. And he, he answered a lot of it, but like you can see a lot of it was written about Marilyn Monroe, about his days in New York. And, but he was a good person and he'd open up and talk to you as much as you talk to him. He uh, had all the respect of the players. I mean, here's Joe DiMaggio, one of the greatest hitters in the history of the game, and he's finally wearing another uniform and it's of Oakland, not San Francisco, not the Yankees. I mean, everybody knows he played with the San Francisco Seals as a young stud. But here he was in Oakland, and he said nobody ever offered him a full-time job before. He used to go to spring training on a limited basis with the Yankees, and that was it. So Charlie Finley came in, offered him a job as a vice president. What he did with that title, I don't know. I think he w attended some big corporate outings and, and corporate uh, uh, signings like the radio contract and the TV contract. But it was a pleasure to be around. He was, uh, there are a couple of stories I probably can't tell you about him, but um, he, uh, 
he was great to all his kids and uh, just a, he was a gentleman and a professional. Wore a coat and tie every day. Moose, we certainly know the uh, the clubhouse atmosphere in 2021 and preparation for a game is so much different. Players get to the ballpark hours beforehand. They have access to video and numbers that have never been seen before over the course of the past few years. The access they've been able to, to have and kind of analyze things. Back in 1968, I have to think that it probably was uh, nothing like that. What was that like on a daily basis inside the A's clubhouse? Absolutely. We started by playing eight o'clock games and then uh, that was in 68 and about, I don't know, mid-season some point we went down to 7.30 and um, uh, just to try to see if it had a spiked attendance at all. Maybe the games were too late starting at eight. But um, the players in those days would arrive to the ballpark very rarely before four o'clock. Nowadays, we've got players for a seven o'clock game coming in at 11, 11.30. You didn't, back in those days, you didn't have any video. You didn't have batting cages. You had no TV to really consider and watch TV. About all they did is sit around and maybe play cards once they got there, but they were also in a hurry to get ready for batting practice. Um, so it was quite different. There were no weight rooms and conditioning was done on their own before they came to the ballpark. I really think lifting weights was discouraged. And one of the few things I saw where people did something with the weights was when Ray Fossey joined us. He had some sort of isometric uh, contraption with rope pulley type thing attached to his locker. And you never saw anything else. You did see some guys stretching on the ground. Rudy would stretch out. Reggie would tell him, he says, if I did that, I'd pull muscles because he was so muscular. It's completely changed. You don't have kitchen. You didn't have kitchens in the clubhouse. You had very little food, maybe something after a game. It was discouraged for a player to, to try to get a sandwich or a hot dog before the game. Uh, the thinking then was you don't play well on a full stomach. It's probably true today, but but if you do it the right way, eat the right things. Uh, very little soda in the clubhouse because they thought that was bad for the stomach. No milk unless it was post-game. So it, it's completely changed. I mean, Society's changed too. I mean, nowadays we have full weight rooms. Uh, guys can run outside, encourage to do that. Uh, you've got your life cycles, you've got your uh, treadmills, you've got free weights, you've got all different things. So that's why the guys come to the ballpark now. And like I said, uh, video is such a big thing. They study video. And actually, now they have the capabilities of studying video at home. So it doesn't make them come in any later, but they can do that there, too, at their, at their uh, leisurely time. You've mentioned some of the names, Steve. I mean, Catfish Hunter, Reggie Jackson, Blue Moon Odom, Sal Bando. I mean, these and others came from Kansas City to the A's as they began in 1968, the, the beginning of the Oakland Athletics. Uh, you mentioned the winning record the first year, 80 and 82. What was the sense that the, the, this group of players really think that they were on the verge of something big? We'll get to that down the road with the back-to-back-to-back World Series. But at that time, this team coming together, how good do they think they were? Absolutely. I mean, the youth on that team, I mean, I think Reggie was 22, Rick Money might have been 25, Joe Rudy 22, all those guys. I mean, the only older guys were Catfish, Blue Moon, and uh, maybe Paul Lindblad, Lou Krause. But, yeah, there was definitely a sense that this club was going to go places. Uh, the The nucleus of that club was so young, and it just needed experience. And, uh, we're exp- and with the split divisions the next year, the expansion of Seattle and um, – who expanded that, that same year? Oh, Seattle and Kansas City. Uh, 
so they split the divisions. Now we're in a division where the best team in the division is Minnesota. And uh, actually, if they had split those divisions and only had the four teams in 68, we would have finished in first place. Um, so, the, yeah, there was definitely a feeling this club was going somewhere. They were going to gel and uh, go on to win championships or at least be competitive for many years. Vuce, one of my favorite parts about this journey through 54 years of your time with the athletics is, is looking back on a lot of the relationships that you've forged over the years. And even that 1968 roster, the first one in Oakland, Tony La Russa's at the end of his career as a player. He went to the big leagues as a teenager with the Kansas City A's. Renee Latchman was on that club. He became a coach and a major league manager. Ed Sprague Sr. was a pitcher on that club. And now his son is the A's director of player development. Those are just the beginnings, I think, of some lifelong friendships that, that you forged starting back in 1968. Uh, how special is that for you? Well, especially spending years with all those guys when they came back as coaches and a manager. Now, uh, I, I'm pretty sure I'm correct on this. The first transaction the A's made that year was they sent Tony La Russa down, who got the first pinch hit in Oakland A's history, by the way. Um, but uh, they sent him down and called up Renee Latchman because the catcher Phil Roof had gotten hurt. So I, then there may have been a couple other transactions. When Renee Latchman was sent back down the minor leagues, Dave Duncan was recalled. And these are guys that are best friends, and they'd all signed at the same time with the Kansas City A's and had gone through the minor leagues together. So there was a close-knit feeling. And then Tony had a cup of coffee in 69 and 70 with us. So he was around, uh, and you could tell he was going to be something special. And this is long before he went to law school. I think he'd already graduated college, but I mean, he signed as a young kid and went to college during the winter. Uh, you could tell it was special. Ed Sprague Sr., I used to sit in the dugout, I'm sorry, in the bullpen, and he was so skinny, they called him Stickman. And when I was standing next to him, they called me Stickman Jr. My has that changed. All those guys, John Donaldson, Dick Green. John Donaldson had a good year in 67, got off to a bad start in 68. Dick Green replaced him and was the everyday second baseman pretty much through 74. Uh, like I said, Sal Bando, Bert Campanaris. Of course, Reggie was his first full-time. He wasn't a rookie because he had passed those at-bat standards, but uh, you had Rick Monday, you had Joe Rudy, guys like Mike Hirschberger, Jim Gosger, uh, pitching staff, Jack Aker. Uh, all, a lot of these guys contributed so much that year, and there were some veterans there, Jack Aker, Paul Lindblad, who would teach some of the young guys coming in. And, and you don't see that as much today. You still see it a little bit and it gets some notoriety. But a lot of times these veterans would just take these young guys. And number one, there aren't that many coaches anymore. And uh, so you don't have dedicated. We have two dedicated hitting coaches. We have a catching coach and Marcus Jensen just works with the catchers. Uh, you didn't have that way back then. So uh, the, I remember Reggie one time talking about the best batting practice he ever had thrown to him was by Mike Hirschberger, a reserve outfielder at the time. Today, you wouldn't even think about putting a, a, a regular player or an active player out on a mound to throw batting practice, but we didn't have that many arms back then. Vuce, this is just episode one. I can hardly wait to continue this journey of 54 years of baseball. Our friends at Athletics.com and AceCast, Cody Elias, putting this together for us on Green and Gold History. Every Thursday we'll have an episode and chance for you to kind of wax eloquent about the times you've spent here. Seven decades with the Green and Gold. It's going to be quite a journey. I hope the fans have enjoyed episode one. More to come here on Green and Gold History and AceCast. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.